Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. All right, we're going to do a second part of our Christmas series. And last year, or last year, I guess I said the same thing yesterday. <laughs> I'm losing my mind. But um, last week, I, I preached probably the first message you've ever heard, a Christmas message out of Genesis, and we preached uh, Christmas in Genesis. And I'm going to continue on in that strain this week and next week. Because the, and the reason is because Christmas has become a holiday almost unto itself. It's such a big holiday, and I love Christmas. And my family, we celebrate Christmas. There's nothing wrong. We have two Christmas trees at home, and we listen to Christmas music, and we have Christmas traditions, and I love all of that. Christmas should be family time. Christmas should be fun. Christmas should be cute. But we, we don't want Christmas to only be that. And for many of us, Christmas has become only that. It's a story that's just unto itself. And the thing we have to realize is Christmas is not a story by itself. It's not a closed story that begins with Jesus being born in a manger and, you know, ends with him kind of growing up. That's, the Christmas story is not a story unto itself. The Christmas story starts at the beginning of Genesis and, and, it, and it continues on long past the Gospels. It hasn't finished yet until Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. Christmas is not the only story out there. It is one part It's not even necessarily the biggest stop in the story. It is one part of a much bigger story that spans the entire Bible and that spans all of human history. And unless we ground Christmas in the bigger story, we lose the urgency of it. We lose the why of it and the the many different whys. We also lose the awe of it. Why did Jesus have to become a human being other than it's kind of a cute thing? And what many people in our area think of is that Jesus became a human being just so he could empathize with us. There's no question Jesus empathizes with us as a result of being human, but that is such a small part of the overarching story of why he became human. And so I'm really passionate to preach this message and ground Christmas in the bigger story of the Bible, of the Old Testament, of human history. And so last week we looked at Genesis chapter 3 and how Christmas actually starts with the fall because unless you have a problem to solve, you, don't, you can't appreciate the solution. So Christmas was the first, you know, shot across the bow, was the first step in a solution that God was putting in place to solve a problem. And we went back to Genesis in the fall and we looked at the problem. We also looked at the, the promise in Genesis 3.15. Uh, that right there in Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning of the Bible, we see the seeds. We see the DNA of Christmas in the promise that uh, God gives to Adam and Eve that this, there's going to be a promised one. This seed of a woman, we see the, the initial hints of a virgin birth. It's not spelled out clearly, but we see hints of it. And we see that this promised one, we, we don't learn much in Genesis 3.15, um, but we do learn that he's going to crush the head of Satan. He's going to defeat uh, evil. Well, today I want to carry on because as the Old Testament goes on, more and more God, as we move to the Old Testament, God is going to unfold this story. He's going to unfold the Christmas story and the bigger story that Christmas is a part of. And today I want to look at Christmas with Abraham, Christmas in the Abrahamic covenant. All right, so let's pray and then we'll look at this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we are all here in need of hope. And there are many, we're sitting, many of us here today, different people, different things we're going through. But we are all in need of hope. And Lord Jesus, the more I get to know you, the more I realize that there is nothing you can't take care of. And so I pray, Father, that today, even as I preach, there's so much more. All I am is a human being trying to speak some of your words. But Lord Jesus, your Holy Spirit has to come and plant the seeds of faith to give us hope for our lives, to overcome and to be victorious. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are going to do exactly that. And we pray all these things in your powerful, wonderful, and beautiful name. Amen. Well, right after Genesis 3, so in Genesis 3, again, we have this this seed promise. This promised one is is, uh, this, this offspring of a woman is going to crush or bruise the serpent's head. The next big story, as we looked at last week, is the flood. And one of the big things we learned from the flood is that you can't solve the problem of evil by getting rid of all the evil people. And that's one of the big lessons from the flood. God reboots the human race. He gets rid of all the evil people. We start over with Noah, who's a righteous and blameless man. And we saw right away Noah himself. The corruption was in Noah and his family. 
then screwed up the human race. And the next chapter, right after the flood, we have chapter 11 of Genesis, which is the Tower of Babel, which is Noah, the righteous man's family, has now spread out through the earth. They now unite together to rebel against God. And if ever there was a time to have another flood, now is the time because, again, the human race has once again gone into complete rebellion against God. But, thankfully, God promised in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood, he said, I won't do that again. And so now we're going to see God work in a new way. Not because God didn't know what he was doing at the beginning. He's unfolding this story for us. He knew all along what he was going to do. But now he's going to show us in Genesis chapter 11, he's going to show us a new way. Rather than wiping out the human race uh, after the Tower of Babel like he did after the flood, he's going to show us a new way. And he's going to show us now how he's going to bring about the plan of, of redemption by, in his mercy, working with corrupt and imperfect and weak human beings rather than getting rid of us all. And so the very next chapter, the very next thing after the Tower of Babel, instead of a flood, we get the story of Abraham. And the first thing in the story of Abraham is we get a promise again. This is God showing us. Getting rid of evil people does not solve the problem. I'm now going to work with corrupt, weak, and imperfect people, starting with Abraham. And so Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we read this promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Just stop there for a moment. This doesn't really have anything to do with this message, but what an application right there. The Lord blesses us and answers our prayers and prospers us, not just for ourselves, but so that we can be a blessing to others. A blessed life is a giving life and a serving life. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, and now here we're going to see more of the unfolding of the Genesis 3 promise. There's this promised one, this offspring of a woman that's going to come and crush the head of Satan. We're going to now begin to unfold that a little bit. And God says to Abraham 4,000 years ago, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, again, we didn't get much information. We got, a little, we got the promise, we got the seed form, um, but it's very, it's very foggy. It's, there's lots of pieces missing, okay? And so in the rest of the Old Testament, it's going to unfold it. So all we learn in Genesis 3, 15, it's an offspring of a woman. This promised one's going to be offspring of a woman, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. We don't know much more than that. Here, in this promise to Abraham, we're going to learn three more things, okay? And the first thing we're going to learn is that this promised one is also going to come from the family of Abraham. So it's going to get more and more specific here. In Genesis 3, we just know it's offspring of a woman. Now we know this offspring of a woman is going to come from Abraham's uh, lineage, a Abraham's family. The second thing we learn is that this promised one has a desire to bless. He has a desire to bless people. Now this is really important. We read this, you know, we, we read these stories 4,000 years later in light of the cross and we lose the appreciation. But if all you have is Genesis 3.15, all we know is that this promised one is going to crush the head of Satan. Well, that's a good thing. We want him to beat up Satan. We want him to crush evil. But maybe this God is just kind of a stern, strict God. He's going to crush Satan, but he doesn't really love us. You know, maybe he's just a strict parent. He's going to discipline evil, but is he really going to do good to us? Here in the promise to Abraham, we find that not only is this pro promised one going to deal with the, with the problem of evil, going to deal with Satan, going to crush evil, he's actually also, his goal is to bless. He wants to do good to the human race. All right? And then a third thing that we learn in this promise is that this blessing is going to be very specific. It is not just, you know, in general, he's going to bless a whole bunch of people. But very specifically, we see that he is, this promised one is going to bless all the families of the earth. Okay? He's going to bless all the families of the earth. This is really important. Okay? When he talks about family, I just love that family picture. But he's talking about every ethnic group and tribe and nation on the earth. This promised one is not just going to bless a bunch of people or a group of people. He is very specifically going to bless every family group in the national ethnic sense uh, on the planet, which is absolutely amazing. Now, uh, I've preached about this before here at Southland, and I will continue to do so because this is a major, uh, this is a major, major component of the storyline in the Bible. 
and many Christians have no idea about it. But this is a huge part of the storyline of the Bible. So here we are in Genesis chapter 12. We are right near the very, very beginning of the Bible, and we are right near the very, very beginning of human history. And right here, we already have this promise that God says, I am going to bless all the family groups, all the nations and ethnic groups of the earth. Now, if we fast forward, this is, this is not just a throwaway line. This is not just a little bit of hyperbole. God was really happy that day. And so he just got kind of carried away. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth, but he didn't really mean it. This is a major, major part of the storyline of the Bible. If we fast forward a few thousand years now, okay, we fast forward now from the first book of the Bible near the very beginning of the Bible to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, the apostle John, a couple thousand years after Abraham, sees a vision of the end of this age when Jesus returns. He said the end of this human age. And in that vision, he sees the throne room of God, and this is what he sees. Famous passage, Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, Greek word ethnos, meaning ethnic group, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, what's so amazing about this, you've got to tie Revelation back to the beginning. The end starts in the beginning. So whatever the time gap is when Jesus finally comes back, and I believe he's coming back very soon, but you go back thousands of years to the promise to Abraham, it all starts right there. He says, this promised one is going, to be, is going to bless all the families of the earth. Now you go ahead to the end of the human age. This spans all of human history, and we see that Jesus is not going to fail in the goal he set. He's not going to fail. And I don't know about you, but that amazes me about Jesus. I, I set goals for three months, you know, two years. I, I don't even bother with two years, but I know a lot of people nowadays, you go to leadership conferences, and it's all about setting goals and all that sort of stuff. You know what? It, it's amazing. As human beings, we can't figure out what's going to happen two years from now. We can't make anything happen three, four, five years down the road. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to be, I'm, through you, I'm going to bless every family on the earth, every ethnic group on the earth. And then we see at the end of time, this gigantic multitude around the throne room of God worshiping him. And we see that Jesus has succeeded in his plan. This is a storyline that goes from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And if we go back to the Gospels, if we go back to Matthew, this is such a huge part of the Bible's storyline that we have been invited to participate in it. Actually not invited, we've been commanded to be a part of it. The Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, this is one of the last things Jesus is going to say to the disciples before he goes back to heaven. So he's died, he's risen from the, the dead, now he's going to leave the disciples with a commission. We need to pay attention to what he says. And so he says, and Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Again, the word there is ethnos, means ethnic groups. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the church's mission statement. God has given us one job. There's other things we're going to do. And do we need to help the poor? Absolutely, as part of this. And do we need to pray? And do we need to, oh, yes, we need to do all these things. These are all really important. He said, my house is going to be a house of prayer and give. And there's all these things we do. But this is our job. It all comes into this one thing. Go and make disciples of all the nations. That's the mission statement he left the church with. And so we read, this, we read the Bible and we see the storyline. So we start with, with, in Genesis 12, right at the beginning, we read about Abraham getting this promise and we read it in the third person. It's like, oh, that's neat. Abraham got this neat promise. We don't see how it applies to us. Then we read in Revelation at the end of the Bible and we say, okay, wow, that's really neat. Jesus fulfilled the promise, but we're still not a part of the story. Then we read Matthew 28 and we see Jesus says, I gave the promise to Abraham and I am surely going to accomplish it. But here's the thing. I'm going to accomplish it through you. You're going to make it happen. And in fact, this is so important to the storyline of the Bible. This is so important to Jesus that he has actually tied the timing of his return to earth to us completing this mission. Empowered by his spirit. Matthew chapter 24, uh, second longest sermon in the Gospels by Jesus, second only after the Sermon on the Mount. Starts in verse 1. Uh, the disciples go to Jesus and they say, can you tell us how are we going to know when you're coming back and what's going to be the sign of the, of the end of the age? 
And if they had had the misfortune of asking that of most North American pastors today, they would have been told, that's a weird question. We don't talk about the end times. That's, that's bizarre. We don't talk about Jesus coming back. We don't want that to really happen. That's kind of weird, right? That's not how Jesus responded. The disciples said, we want to know when you're coming back and what's the sign of the end of the age. Jesus gives them the second longest sermon in all the Gospels. And in that sermon, he says this very important thing. And we see Genesis and the Great Commission and Revelation all tied together, this storyline that is running throughout the entire Bible. And Jesus says this, he will not be wrong about a single thing he says. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, ethnos, ethnic groups, and then the end will come. We have this sort of idea, I think, sometimes that God is just in heaven. He doesn't really, you know, why is he taking so long? Well, maybe he just doesn't really care. He's kind of distant. He doesn't know the suffering that's going on down here. I'll tell you, there's one reason Jesus hasn't come back yet today. There's one reason Jesus hasn't come back yet today, and that's because there's family groups that would still be missing from heaven if he returned. And so he has given us a commission. He said to Abraham, this promised one is going to be a blessing to every family and tribe and nation on the earth. And in Revelation, he says, I am not going to fail in my goal. I'm not going to fail in my promise. And in the Great Commission, he says, you are going to carry it out by the power of my spirit. And in Matthew 24, he says, and I won't come back until it's done. See, Jesus wants to actually come back. He wants to come back bad. In fact, the moment this happens and then the end will come, nothing will be able to hold him back from coming back and setting up his kingdom. He desperately wants to come back. He wants to come back more than any of us want him to come back yet. He wants to come back. He wants to set up his kingdom. He wants to make everything right. He wants to deal with evil once and for all. The moment we reach every, the moment the promise to Abraham is fulfilled and the Great Commission is completed, nothing will be able to hold him back from coming back and then the end will come. Now the amazing thing is, so we get invited into this storyline, but again, we read these things and it's like, well, what do I do about this, right? So I read the Great Commission and I go, what do I do about it? Okay, that's cool, but I live here in Steinbach. There's no unreached people groups here in Steinbach, right? So what do we do, okay? I just feel so blessed. Have you ever stopped to realize that here at Southland, Jesus has actually given us, he's head of the church, he's actually given us a teeny piece of this pie. We, we just call it church renewal. We just call it church renewal. Have you ever thought about how lucky we are He's come here to Steinbach, and there's no way one church can carry out the Great Commission, not even close. But he's given us a tiny slice of the pie. He said, you guys there in Steinbach, I actually want you in the game. I actually want you in the game. I was thinking uh, two church renewal weekends ago. I think it was the May one. Uh, the Africans and the Mexicans don't really like to come to the January ones. But um, <laughs> for obvious reasons, I don't even want to be here for the January one. If we're here, then I may as well come to the church renewal weekend, but... Um, I'm sitting with one of our African uh, pastors who we are mentoring and we're supporting and involved with Alex and the whole thing. And uh, he's just eating it up. They're so hungry. They're so hungry. And all this stuff about hearing God and, and, and being set free and they're going to bring this DNA back and it, just so hungry, just loving it. And I sat down and had lunch with him. And, and I, I, but I didn't want to talk to him anymore. He's hearing enough from us. I wanted to hear from him. You tell me kind of what, what goes on, what you do. And then he starts to tell me about what he does. Uh, Uganda is just a little country, but it's surrounded there by all kinds of countries. And he was be, told me how he goes into the Sudan, which is a very dangerous country. And he goes all over in the jungles of, of, of the Sudan. And he goes places us white people would never want to go, right? And, and, and dangerous. And he goes village to village, unreached villages, villages have never heard the gospel, and how he has planted church after church after church. We're not talking three or four. We're probably talking dozens. I don't know, but lots we get to be partnered with people like this. He's eating up the mentoring. We're with him. He's on video mentoring. He just, oh, we have another guy uh, similar in the Congo. I was talking to Eddie this week. 37 churches in Latin America we're connected with right now, four different countries, and it's rapidly growing. They are absolutely hungry. Learning how to hear God, but without the abuses. Learning how to deal with sin in their churches, how to get their churches praying. They are so hungry and passionate. And I think to myself, who's going to reach all the unreached people groups in those nations? 
Are we going to be able to go to all those nations and do it? You know, is it going to be us, you know, Mennonites? Is it going to be us here from Steinbeck? Going to be, we're not going to be able to reach them all. But as each of these churches, one by one, and it's growing, growing across Latin America, as they're getting set on fire, as they're dealing with their sins and learning to hear God's voice, as they get set on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're going to then go and reach all the unreached people groups in their cities and nations. We get a little slice of the pie. God made this promise to Abraham, and he's beginning to raise this up. We're living in the first generation where we could actually see the Great Commission completed in our generation. You know, we're just over, I think, uh, well, for sure we're at 120. We might be just over already. I don't know. It just keeps growing so rapidly. Uh, 120 Canadian pastors now in church renewal. You say, well, what does that have to do with the Great Commission? I mean, Canada is all reached already. Let me tell you what this has to do with the Great Commission. Again, I said before, one church can't pull this off. One church cannot pull off the Great Commission. We need nations of churches set on fire by the Holy Spirit, not soaked in materialism and apathetic, but full of power in the Holy Spirit, praying, hearing God, dealing with sin, who are then going to take on this great commission. And we're seeing the testimonies we're seeing right now uh, around, this, around this country, 120, as these churches are, are starting to deal with their sin, they're starting to awaken. They're starting to awaken to prayer. As they start to awaken to prayer and serving and getting that vision from God, these churches are going to become sending churches as well. And we want to see the Canadian church Raised up by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is all a gift from God. Who are we to get to be a part of this? Our little piece. And it's just our little tiny piece. The Great Commission is so much bigger than church renewal and what we're doing here. I've been hearing, I've been following recently in India right now. India, uh, there, there is a revival happening in India right now. They don't talk about it in the news, but it is stunning the scope and the size of the revival happening in India right now. And, but at the same time as that's happening, intense, intense persecution. Their president in India has now declared he wants to make India a Hindu state. The persecution on Christians right now, violent, fiery, intense, and growing. And these Christians are sacrificing it all, but they're going for the unreached people groups in India, and the church is it's, it's just growing like crazy. And I just say, God, give us an opportunity to be in the game too. Give us an opportunity to be in the game too. You know, when Jesus returns, he is going to come back someday. And when he comes back, we're all going to know who are the ones, who are the ones that really wanted him to come back and really devoted their lives to that and who are the ones that just played a game. So, you know, when we come to something like this, even just to bring up the, the Christmas offering, this is not just some, oh, Southland does it and let's, you know, make the building nicer and stuff. We don't use any of it on the building and making these services nicer. This is all about the mission. My wife and I were praying together this week. It's like, Lord, I don't want to just throw a $20 bill at the Great Commission. I want, to, I want to join in the fellowship of sacrifice and suffering with those Indian believers and those African believers and those Latin American believers that we as a people and as a church are going to lay down our lives to say, Jesus, we actually want you to come back. And we want to see the promise of Abraham fulfilled in our day and our generation. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter, turn the page and figure it out, six. (laughs) Your heart will go where your money is and your money will go where your heart is. Your money will go where your heart is and your heart will go where your money is. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Well, we could sit on that for a while. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. How many of us are going to be rich in the things of this earth when Jesus returns and not rich in the things of God? Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus has given the church one job to do. Are we in or are we in? Well, back to, uh, let's go back to Abraham and this whole unfolding of the Christmas story. Genesis 12, 
God gives to Abraham this promise. He begins to build on what he started in Genesis chapter 3. He says, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you, Abraham. This promised one is going to come from your lineage, from your family. He's going, to, he's going to bless all the families of the earth. Genesis 15, a few years later, God's going to come back to Abraham, and he's going to ratify, he's going to confirm the promise he made to Abraham. And the thing you have to understand is in, is in the ancient uh, Middle East, they had a very specific custom for how you would ratify, how you would confirm a covenant or a contract. Um, they had a very specific custom for this, and this custom spanned centuries and many different cultures in the Middle East. Uh, we read about it still in Romans time, Roman times. It was certainly in effect in Abraham's time, uh, hundreds of years before that. And, uh, and the thing you have to realize is nowadays we have filing cabinets, we have paper, we have pens. You want to sign a contract with someone, you don't have to kill anyone. You just sign on a piece of paper, you put it in a filing cabinet, and it's a contract. Okay, they didn't have that in Abraham's day. They didn't have, didn't have that in the ancient Middle East. So instead, what they did, would do is they would cut animals in half and walk in between the carcasses. You say, huh? Okay, yes, that's how you would make a covenant in the ancient Middle East, is you would take a few animals, and uh, maybe you would take your neighbor's cat or the dog or whatever, and you would just cut them in half. <laughs> I'm just... I'm just kidding. Actually, my neighbor was here last night. He asked me, this is true, after the service, were you talking about my cat? <laughs> and uh, I'm on tape on this one. So no, I was not. And uh, <laughs> literally, he did ask me that after the service. I'm, oh, no, sorry. I, I like your cat. You keep him inside. But anyway, he, um, <laughs> so you would take several animals and you would, you would cut them in the middle. You would cut them in half and then you would like lay the carcass bits like this. And then, and then you and the party, whoever's making the covenant, the contract, you would, you would walk in between the halves of this animal. Yeah, it sounds kind of nasty to us now, but it, the point was it was supposed to be a solemn ceremony. They didn't have paper and pen and computers to keep track of contracts. So it was supposed to be a solemn ceremony. And the point was you'd walk between the halves of, this, of these carcasses together, you and whoever you were making the, co the covenant with, and you would recite the terms of the covenant. And the point was that if you break this covenant, it's going to happen to you what's happened to these animals. Literally, you'll be, you'll be cut in half, okay? And this, again, this spanned many centuries in the ancient Middle East. This was, this was the, the uh, whatever, that was their custom for how you did a covenant. And we're going to find that in Genesis 15. What I love about God, he's so amazing, is that, like, kind of, it's a bizarre custom, really, to us now. We look back, and that's weird. God in heaven comes down, well, let's read about it, and we'll, you're going to see. He comes down to our level, and he, and he enters into some of our customs with us. And I just love that about him. But anyway, Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And he, that's God, brought Abram outside and said, look, again, famous story, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. But Abram said, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So Genesis 12, God gives him this promise, the initial promise, I'm going to bless the nations. And now he still doesn't have a kid though. And a few years later, God comes back and, and reiterates the promise to him. And Abraham, I love Abraham in his, in his weakness. He says, how do I know I'm going to have, how, how do I know this promise is really true? I still don't have a kid. And what we're going to see now is God is going to stoop down to human level. He's going to say, here's something Abraham understands. He understands that when you, you make a covenant, you cut animals in half, and you make a covenant that you're going to keep your promise. So God's going to come down, and he's going to enter into a human, human custom, and he's going to make a, a covenant and a promise with Abraham now. So verse 9, God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So Abraham, this is what Abraham understands. If you're going to make a promise that you can never break, this is how you do it. And so God's going to deign to come down and enter into a human custom. And so Abraham cuts the, these animals in half. And now he's waiting. Now, I don't know what he's expecting. What is God going to look like? What is God going to do? But he waits there all day for God to show up so that they can walk in between the halves. And when the birds come down and, and on the carcasses, he shoes them away. Uh, he's looking forward to this. Now, he waits all day. We know that's because verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now, this is not the kind of like after Fosba and you've eaten too many times in the last couple hours and you just sort of nod off. Okay? 
He's not going into a deep sleep because he's tired. Okay, this is God putting him into a deep sleep. All right. And uh, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now, I'm going to skip ahead a few verses because there's a, a bunch of really interesting things there, and I don't want to, don't want to get into that. But verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, which reminds us a little bit, if you think ahead in the story, 400 years later, God is going to lead Abraham's descendants, the Jews, out of Egypt, and they're going to, they're going to be following the, the cloud and the pillar of fire, right? And so the smoking, uh, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, this is God. Abraham is seeing God pass between the pieces, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river. And he goes on and on. He's spelling out the land of Israel. Uh, part of, a big part of this Abrahamic covenant has to do with the Jewish people and the land of Israel. I'm not touching that. There's a whole side of the Abrahamic covenant that is about the Jewish people. I've talked about that before. I will talk about it more in the future. Today, I'm just honing in on the part of the Abrahamic covenant that applies to us, this unfolding of the messianic story of this, mess, this promised one who will save the earth. So I'm ignoring a whole, uh, a whole chunk there. But what's so interesting about this story? There's something fascinating, and that is this. I don't know how many of you noticed it, but Abraham never passes through the halves of the animal. Now, this is really, really important. Because again... You, this cutting of the animals, this was a solemn occasion. Both people would pass through the halves of the animal because both people had terms and responsibilities. And the whole point was, neither one of you is supposed to break the contract, and if you do, you're going to be cut in half just like these animals. So now God comes to Abraham to make a covenant with, with um, Abraham, but he knocks Abraham out, okay? He puts him in a deep sleep. Abraham watches God pass through the halves, but Abraham never does. Why does he do it that way? Very, very significant. God is making a statement here that all the terms of this covenant are going to rest on his shoulders, not Abraham or his descendants. Let's step back for a moment and just think about this. The covenant God made with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was you can live in the Garden of Eden, you can eat from the tree of, of life, and you can live forever and never die and have perfect communion with me. And all you have to do is just not eat from the one tree. Like, it's not even that hard. But that was the covenant. If you eat from the tree, then this covenant is broken, you, then you will die, you will get kicked out of the garden, you will not have access to the tree of life, you will not have uh, you know, communion with me. It's a covenant. So Adam and Eve have to hold up their end of the bargain. Now their end of the bargain was really, really easy. Just don't eat from the tree. I mean, build a fence around it. I mean, cut it down maybe even, but don't eat from it. Right? But of course, they were human. Right? And the fact of the matter is, we, you know, I have some fun with the story. The fact of the matter is, any single one of us in the Garden of Eden, we would have all done the same thing eventually. Because we're weak and we're sinful and we're corrupt. So even though it was the easiest contract you could imagine, they still couldn't carry it out. And then we see the flood. God wipes out all evil. He starts again with Noah. Noah's a righteous and blameless man. And Noah can't carry out a perfectly righteous and blameless life. So now God comes to Abraham, and he's good. this is foreshadowing the covenant, the new covenant he's going to make with us with Jesus. But this is so powerful he says, this covenant, this thing I'm going to do to save all the families of the earth, to save all, you know what? It can't rest on your shoulders. Because even if I give you the easiest covenant possible, just don't eat from a tree, you'll still mess it up. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm promising you today that I'm going to send a promised Messiah, and I am going to save and bless all the families of the earth. But it can't rest on you. So God himself comes down to Abraham, puts Abraham in a deep sleep, and passes through the halves and says, I'm going to have to fulfill the terms of this covenant myself. That's Christmas. God comes down, he says, none of you can live a perfect life. None of you can carry out the terms of this covenant. So I'm going to have to do it myself. So he gets born as a human being, and as a human being, he lives a perfect, sinless life on our behalf. He fulfills the terms of the covenant for us. Isn't he good? Amen. I think he's good. I think he's good. I know he's good. 
This point is so important that God is going to ratify and confirm this several times in the book of Genesis. And we're going to spend the rest of the time in, in the message on the last one, Genesis chapter 22, in the sacrifice of Isaac. And in the sacrifice of Isaac, God is again going to reaffirm his promise to bless the human race, but he's going to do it in a spectacular way. And so we pick up the story of Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, I mean, time out for just a moment. Technically, Abraham had another son, didn't he? Ishmael, that he had with the servant girl. But he was never supposed to have had that son. Okay? In terms of the promise, he only has one son. Now, I should just say, there may be some Ishmaels out there today. There may be people here today, and you feel like an illegitimate child. You feel unwanted. You feel rejected. I just want you to know something. Abraham should never have had Ishmael. Ishmael was the result of sin. But God did not hate Ishmael. And there's a whole other message there. Joel Richardson talks about this a bit as well and stuff. But there are promises in the Bible, even for Ishmael and for Ishmael's descendants. I believe in the end times. I believe in the generation we're in right now. In fact, we're already beginning to see the beginnings of it. But I believe we're going to see a mighty uh, uh, harvest of Muslim souls as a direct result of some of God's biblical promises to Ishmael. So the fact that Ishmael was illegitimate doesn't mean, or the fact that you might feel illegitimate doesn't mean that God, God still takes evil and turns it for good. Amen. And he didn't, dis- he didn't reject Ishmael forever. But for the purpose of this story, it's very important that he says, your only son, Isaac. Because 2,000 years later, there's another only son of a father who is also going to be sacrificed. And Moses, who's writing this story down, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has no idea what's coming, you know, when Jesus comes as the only son of the Father. And yet he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, it says here in this next phrase, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, we have to stop here for just a moment because we read our Bible so quickly we miss stuff. Okay? If you read at the end of Genesis chapter 21, we find that Abraham was living in a place called Beersheba. Okay? Beersheba is about 42 miles from the land of Moriah. All right? Now to us, again, we read our Bible so quickly, it's not, not a big deal. Uh, so 42 miles, that's like a 42-minute drive, right? And for some of you, it's quicker than that. And uh, until, until the police get you and then it became longer, right? But, but 42 miles, you just get in your car, you drive 42 miles. You have to remember... This is 4,000 years ago. There's no highways. There's no cars, okay? As we're going to find out later in this story, this is a three-day journey. So why would God, like, why would God not just send him? And by the way, if you look at a map, you might think, well, maybe the reason God had to send him to the land of Moriah is because there was no mountains around Beersheba, so he had to send him to the nearest mountain so he could go up there and sacrifice Isaac. And actually, if you look at a map, Beersheba is in the same mountain range as the land of Moriah, as Mount Moriah, there's mountains, there was mountains and hills everywhere around where Abraham lived. So God could have just said, just go up on the nearest hill, go up on that hill, go up on that hill, go up, go, just go up on any of the hills, you pick one, go up there and sacrifice Isaac. But he doesn't say go up on just any hill. He says, I want you to go three days journey, 42 miles. You're going to pass dozens of hills and mountains because I want you to go to a very specific mountain in the land of Moriah. And that's where I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Why did God care where Abraham did this? Well, the interesting thing is, in Abraham's day, there was nothing big going on in the land of Moriah. But a thousand years after Abraham, there was going to be a city on Mount Moriah, in the land of Moriah, a very important city in the Bible. In fact, the most important city in the Bible, the central city that everything revolves around in this book, and that is Jerusalem. And not only would Jerusalem be on, on Mount Moriah, the very temple that Solomon would build as a house for God, as a, as a center of worship for God in the Old Testament, would be built on the very mountain of Moriah in Jerusalem. Let me show you this, 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. There's no accidents with God. There's no accidents with God. 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Okay? So this is no accident. All right? Genesis chapter 12, 
God makes a promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through this promised one that's going to come out of your family. Okay? Genesis 15, he comes back and confirms it with a covenant where he passes through himself. He says, I will surely do this, and it's going to rest on me, not on you or your descendants. Now in Genesis 22, he's going to come back and confirm the promise again, but this time he's actually going to have Abraham and Isaac, without them even knowing it, act out how he's going to redeem mankind. Genesis 12, here's the promise. Genesis 15, here's the covenant. I'm going to do it on myself. It's not going to depend on you. Genesis 22, without you even knowing it, Abraham, I'm going to have you act out the plan of redemption and how I'm going to carry this promise out. And now Abraham and Isaac are going to exactly act out the sacrifice of Jesus by the Father in the very place where Jesus himself would be sacrificed. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now the number three is really important in the, story of, in the redemption story of Jesus. It's also really important in this story. It's no accident that God in his sovereignty has set everything up, that Abraham would happen, just happen to be living in Beersheba, that it would just happen to take him three days to be able to get to Mount Moriah, the number three, really important. There's all kinds of places we could go with this in the story of Jesus, and commentators have done lots of work with this, but, um, but it's no accident that Jesus was crucified in the third hour. Mark chapter 15, verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. It's no accident that Jesus would rise on the third day. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, that Jesus was buried, that he was raised on the third day and in accordance with the scriptures. All of this is part of the tying in of these two stories. Abraham and Isaac are acting out the Father in Jesus. They're acting out the fulfillment of the promise and the covenant that they've been given. We keep going, verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, how can Abraham say, we're going to come back to you? Right? Throughout this story, he says, I'm going to come back to you. Over and over again, several times, I'm going to come back to you, I'm going to come back to you. You're about to go and sacrifice your son. How can you keep telling everyone that you and the son are going to come back? Genesis 22 doesn't tell us his mindset, but Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews does. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews says this, in Hebrews 11, verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now look at Abraham's mindset. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. This is 2,000 years before Jesus. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now I have wondered for years, how did Abraham obey God in this Genesis 22 story? Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, we, we read in verse 3, that there's no, I mean, I've just thought for you, it's like Abraham must have been the greatest spiritual giant in the history of man because God comes and says, I want you to sacrifice your only son and we don't see any lengthy period of wrestling like, why God? Why? We don't see any lengthy period of, of wrestling with God. You know what? I mean, if I was Abraham, I'd be more like Jonah. You want my what? And I'm running in the opposite direction as fast as I can. Where's, the Mount, where's Mount Moriah? It's here. I'm going, whoop, into Egypt. I'm going into Africa. I'm going to find North America. Long, thousands of years before Christopher Columbus. But I'm not going to the land of Moriah. Right? I'm, I'm going to be Jonah. I'm going to go the opposite way. Okay? What do we read in verse 3? Is that Abraham got up the next morning. So God says, I want your son. In verse 3, which we already went past, it says Abraham just got up, saddled his donkey, and they left. <gasps> what? kind of obedience is that? And for years I thought, he's just such an amazing spiritual giant. Like, he just loves to do hard things for God and just sacrifice for God. And actually, that's not at all why Abraham was able to obey like this. Hebrews 11 tells us why. It's because Abraham trusted in the goodness of God to the core of his being. God says, I want your son. And Abraham goes, oh, I wonder how he's going to work this out because that's the son of the promise. I wonder if he's going to raise him from the dead and give him back to me. His trust is the core of the being. See, trust is the source of obedience. Trust is the source of obedience. Jonah didn't trust God. He ran. 
Abraham trusted God. He knew the goodness of God so much that at the core of his being, God comes and says, I want your only son. The hardest thing you could ask a dad for, I want your only son. And the only thought that can go through Abraham's mind is, I wonder if he's going to raise him from the dead and give him back to me. Like, how is he going to work this out? That is trust. Now, I wonder how many of us this Christmas season are wrestling with God. Sometimes in our culture, it's almost like we brag about, oh, I've been wrestling with God. Well, it's not always bad. There's a place and we're not where we need to be to get to obedience and so we wrestle with God. But it's almost like it's become a badge of honor. I wrestle with God. Actually, the reason we wrestle is because we don't know how good God is. And the God we serve today is the same God Abraham knew. We just don't know him as well. But if you knew how good God was, if you actually walked with him like Abraham walked with him, you would know that he never asks you for anything hard except that he wants to do good to you. And if you and I, if our church could ever get that conviction to the depth of our soul that God only ever asks me for hard things because he wants to do good for me, we would obey like Abraham obeyed because trust is the source of obedience. Abraham, I want your son. Man, you're going to raise him from the dead and give him back to me? He just knew how good God was. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. This is just so powerful. Isaac is now carrying the very wood he's going to be sacrificed on. Now think about that for a moment. Who else would carry the wood for his sacrifice on his back? 2,000 years later, Jesus, the Son of God, would carry the wood for his sacrifice on his back until he was so weak that he actually needed help with it. But Isaac, too, carried the wood for his own sacrifice. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide. Do you see the trust? Do you know what would happen to your life if you began to seek God and to know him the way Abraham knew him? To go through life and hard things happen because hard things do happen. And God, God sometimes takes us into difficult places. But to go through knowing to the core of your being, God will provide. Abraham's walking up this mountain, about to sacrifice his son, and he's, his eyes are wide open. God will provide. God will provide. He's the same God today. For many of us, we just don't know him as well. He wants to do the same for us. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, at this point, I switched from being in awe at Abraham's obedience and now I'm also in awe of Isaac's obedience. The thing you have to understand is that often the picture is we think of Isaac as like a seven or eight-year-old boy. He's not a seven or eight-year-old boy. He's at least in his teens. We don't know all the, the gaps of years that have happened in the story, but he could be anywhere from his late teens to 35. Some commentators think based on the whole parallel with Jesus, he was 33, but there's no biblical proof for that. It's a possibility. But he's a young adult or an adult. And now his dad, who's ancient, his dad is well over 100, okay? And he doesn't, so his dad is, here he is, a young adult, and his dad binds him up. He's not fighting, he's obedient. Just like Jesus in the Garden of Eden. He so doesn't want to be sacrificed that he's sweating drops of blood, but he says to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Then verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him there was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. This is Christmas. At just the right time. At just the right time, Abraham looks out, just in the nick of time, and there is a lamb 
for the sacrifice. And when we see the pictures of cute little baby Jesus in the manger this year, it's the same story at just the right time. Just the right time. Just in the nick of time, God provides a lamb for the sacrifice. At just the right time, God comes in flesh and says, you guys can't carry out your end of the bargain. So I'm going to be born in the flesh and I'm going to carry out the terms on myself and live a perfect sinless life for you and then be a sacrifice for you. At just the right time, he provides a lamb. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. Literally, Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And, and it's very likely that it was the very spot. Now, it might not be, but it's in, the very, it's in the area anyway. It could have been in the very spot where Jesus himself was crucified that Abraham here offered up his son. So what do we do with this message? We worship and we thank him. We worship and we thank him. And this week, as we go through our week, we meditate on these truths and we say, Jesus, you have done it for me. And perhaps you're here today and you've never had, there's only one thing we do in this whole thing and that's accept and receive him. Most of us here today have done that, no doubt. But maybe there are some people here today who have not had that opportunity. So I'm just going to pray a prayer now. And any of you who has never had a chance to just say yes to Jesus and his sacrifice, I want you just to pray it in your hearts with me. And afterwards, I want you to go into the prayer room just out through those doors and tell someone about it. But I'm going to pray a prayer, and then the worship team is going to have a special number. Lord Jesus, thank you for living a perfect, sinless life on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross to pay for my sins. Jesus, please take away my sins and bring me into your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.